Well, good morning. This is such a special place, I know, to so many of you. I have a very unusual connection to the Scots Crust. Um, in 2013, my niece Caitlin started a master's degree here. And knowing that my boys, I have three sons, have always all been into sports memorabilia. One time when she was here, she bought them all pennants. And even though we had never visited Lookout Mountain, my boys proudly hung those pennants in their rooms. And uh, my niece told me how much she loved Covenant, how much she just dreamed of even living in this area. And we lived in the D.C. area at the time. I don't know if I mentioned that. And so she told me she dreamed of living here, and I was like, really? I mean, look out, Mountain, where is that even? Um, but, you know, as, uh, as life tends to work out in unusual ways, my husband found out about a job opportunity three years ago here. And before I knew it, we were taking down those pennants, packing them up, and moving here. <laughs> Interestingly, those pennants have never been seen again. <laughs> so I may have to swing by the bookstore and get some more. Um, actually, I asked my son Nate the other day, I said, hey, honey, whatever happened to your, uh, to your Scots pennant? And he's like, what? I said, you know, the, the, covenant that's, the covenant pennant that was hanging in your room, the one Caitlin gave you, and he's like, that was Covenant? <laughs> he didn't even know that Scott was, even though he's lived here three years, so I don't know. He's actually very smart, but uh, I don't know what happened. <laughs> I don't know what happened with that, but I think I'm going to definitely have to get some more of those, though. So anyway, I do need some audience participation for what I'm going to talk to you about today. I want you to raise your hand if last month you went to any kind <laughs> There's already a hand raising. It's awesome. <laughs> Uh, raise your hand if last month you went to any kind of gathering that involved an ugly Christmas sweater. Okay, I would have thought there might even be more. Did you know that like before you were born, those parties didn't even exist? The sweaters existed, <laughs> but not the parties. Um, when I was in my young 20s, I actually received one as a Christmas gift. I'm six feet tall. I stand out. Um, when I go shopping, I gravitate towards black and brown and gray. I don't need to wear anything loud or attention-grabbing, so I was really curious why this person would think I would want an ugly Christmas sweater. I felt embarrassed unwrapping the present. Um, and predictably, it was a gift that was never used. I want you to raise your hand again if you have an unused gift card somewhere. If you have an unused gift card. Okay. <laughs> so pretty much everyone on that one. Um, I do too. Um, annually, I don't, you may be familiar with the statistic, there are a billion gift cards, or a billion dollars worth of gift cards that go unused. And that is a huge improvement because of legislation about how quickly they can expire from 10 years ago when it was more like $8 billion was lost in unused gift cards. But there's something really sad about unused gifts. We feel unhappy if we're the recipient and we either shove it to the back of the closet or promptly donate it. And we feel even more discouraged if we are the gift giver and we watch our gift go unused. For my topic for you this morning is the sorrow of an extravagant gift that often goes unused. It is not a physical gift, like that hideous sweater, and it's not like our unredeemed gift cards. I'm talking about 
the gift that was way more expensive and way more sacrificial. It is the peace that Jesus gives. In John 14, Jesus tells us, The Counselor, the Holy Spirit, who the Father will send in my name, will teach you all the things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So I want to unpack with you this morning why, why it is that Jesus get, gave us his peace right there in John 14, and yet many of us would say our lives are not particularly marked by peace at all. So let's dive in by looking at what it means to have or live under the peace of Christ. Wyatt Graham says, When Jesus leaves, the Spirit comes and peace with him. The Spirit of Christ comes to us from the Father and grants us peace. Jesus' peace teaches not to live on bread alone, not to rely on circumstances, not to thrive on worldly gain. It shows us an eternal, immortal, and transcendent way. It brings us into the heavenly places. Thomas Merton says, We are not at peace with others because we are not at peace with ourselves. And we are not at peace with ourselves because we are not at peace with God. Jesus' redemptive work on the cross mends the gap, opens the door to peace with God, but we cannot be plucked from Jesus' hand. Our peace with God is not performance-based. We did not earn it. We cannot lose it. It is based entirely on his righteousness and is a free gift. Yet even though we know this to be true, our ability to embrace this truth is impaired by certain actions or inactions. Paul writes in Colossians, Let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. But that little word, let, is sometimes a stumbling block. Peace is ours to the taking, but we have to be intentional in let it, letting it rule in our hearts. Obviously, the peace of Christ is not going to rule in our hearts if we are living lives of unrepentant sin. But what else impairs peace? I want to talk to you this morning about three major peace killers that I've witnessed and experienced in my own life. So, peace killer number one. I was with a friend of mine, Brandy, a couple weeks back, who still lives in the D.C. area. Every year, Brandy and her husband host an open house on Christmas Eve. They order tons of beautiful food. There's sushi. There's prime rib. Um, then, after a local candlelight service, 50 or so people, mostly families that don't have relatives nearby, congregate at Brandy's house. And it is a lovely event that my family enjoyed immensely when we lived there. This year, Brandy told me that she felt the strong urging of the Holy Spirit to invite some specific neighbors down the street to join them at church and then at the open house. She had friendly but brief conversations with this neighbor family, but didn't really know them. Life got busy. Brandy has five children and is finishing up a master's degree in counseling. Christmas Eve arrived, and she had not invited the neighbors. You can imagine her surprise when her family of seven snuck in a few minutes late to that candlelight service, and those very neighbors were sitting in the pew in front of them. Brandy confessed to this family that she was supposed to invite them, and hadn't. She asked them to please come to the open house, and wonder of wonders, even at the very last minute, they came. So here's the thing. When we fail to obey the gentle promptings of the Holy Spirit, when we ignore his still, small voice, it's a peace killer. But it's not only a hindrance to peace. We miss the blessing of co-laboring with our infinitely loving and creative Father. It's such a simple example, but I think highlights for us something truly profound. God invites us in to be part of his plan. 
If we refuse, his plan isn't thwarted, but we miss out. We miss out on the peace that we gain from obeying, and, and we miss out on the faith-building joy of co-laboring in God's good, pleasing, and perfect plan. So if you want more peace in your life, accept the gentle invitation to come alongside, listen hard to the still small voice, and obey. A second peace killer is anger. The United States, like any society, has always had its fair share of anger. I think even probably the people who threw the tea over in the Boston Harbor were pretty angry. But it does feel like in the last few years something has really ratcheted up the anger. Perhaps social media is partly to blame, or highly divisive politics. It actually doesn't matter so much how much how we got here. Our, cult our whole culture has a serious anger problem, and Christians are not exempt. What do you do when you feel angry? I think a lot of us immediately try to justify it, try to psychologically ram it into that realm of righteous anger. But anger and unforgiveness are never part of God's plan for us. In 2018, someone I'm close to was a subject of character assassination. And let me tell you, slander is incredibly painful to watch. The whole scenario arose very unexpectedly, but the reality of it and the ramifications of it sunk in pretty much like being sucker punched. You just left reeling. That just happened. But the more I thought about it, the more infuriated I became. In my rage, I prayed imprecatory psalms, and I tried to convince myself that my anger was righteous. But as the weeks turned into months, I started to realize how much mental energy, my anger, justified or not, was consuming. I can tell you, too, that in this season of being shocked and furious, I definitely did not feel peace. In fact, forgiving and praying for the slanders has been my path back to peace. And this is not a completed work in me by any means. But I can tell you the more I let go of the anger, the more I focus on Jesus and the blessing he's bestowed upon me, the more peace I feel. There is no real healing in this circumstance. It is not resolved. But I am learning to wait on the Lord. I know that there is never any danger of me trusting him too much. He will vindicate. My job is not to know when or to offer to help. My job is to wait, to trust, to forgive. As C.S. Lewis so succinctly put it, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in us. I'm so sorry. Oh, my word. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, Lewis also said this, there is no use in talking of for as if forgiveness was easy. We all know the old joke, you've given up smoking, I've given it up a dozen times. In the same way I could say of a certain man, have I forgiven him for what he did that day? I've forgiven him more times than I can count. For we find that the work of forgiveness has to be done over and over and over again. And this is where I am in that slander mess. I'm in a state of forgiving over and over again. Clinging to Jesus, trying to let anger be the lid, trying not to let anger be the lid that suffocates my joy, as Anne Voskamp puts it. So what are you angry about today? Can I tell you that even if it's justified, even if it's 100% righteous, that's pretty unlikely, that no matter what, anger is a peace killer, 
You are called, I am called, to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. We can't do that and harbor anger at the same time. Tim Keller recommends that when someone wrongs you, you try to look at that person primarily as someone who is at war with God. Have you tried that? Can you trust the timing of the Lord in your circumstance? Can you believe that he will vindicate? The last peace killer I want to talk about may be the most universal. It's fear. In different ways and at different times, I think we all live in fear. Sacrificing the peace of Christ in the process. I grew up in Plymouth, Michigan, which is a lovely little town in the suburbs of Detroit. I had loving parents and three older siblings. Family gatherings were fun and frequent, and I had a blast in high school. But for whatever reason, I thought college was going to be the best time of my life. I had dreamed of going to Stetson University, a small liberal arts college in Florida since I was eight years old. Escaping the snow with palm trees swaying outside my window, that was my dream. As we drove to Florida that August, I remember feeling incredibly anxious. Not about starting college, but about dying en route. <laughs> At one point, we drove through a pretty severe thunderstorm, and I felt utterly panicked. What if I never made it? What if I never got to experience this incredible thing I'd been dreaming of? As I look back on it, I think I can understand why I was so terrified. And maybe you can relate. You see, I was a nominal Christian, but in my mind, I was the sovereign in my life. At the wise old age of 18, I thought I knew just what I needed. And I truly believed that how my life, turn, life turned out was all up to me. Now I understand that when I am in a place where I am trying to control something, and really it can be anything, that that's a place of fear. If I were to decide that X or Y is what I must have to be happy, then I clamor for X or Y in a frantic, fearful, peaceless, and consuming way. But I'm not that college-bound girl full of fear anymore. Let me tell you why. <laughs> First, a bit of background. I did not love college one one-hundredth as much as I thought I would. <laughs> it was fine, but I had created in my mind the most grandiose expectations that I was sure to be disappointed. Of course, I did meet my husband well there, so I guess, you know, was a win after all. <laughs> so... So Will and I got married a couple years after graduation, and after somewhat of a rocky start, settled into married life. We had lived in the D.C. area for a couple years when my dad convinced us that we should buy something instead of paying our exorbitant rent. My husband was in, was in residency and worked a ton, and so my parents would come and go real estate shopping with me. After lots of looking, we found a rundown little two-bedroom condo that would be just right. It needed a lot of love, but the price was right, and my dad was excited about helping us restore it. A week after we closed on and moved into that condo, my parents boarded a flight to come see us. They were coming from Florida to D.C. by way of Detroit. <laughs> my sister worked for Northwest Airlines, and so wherever they went, they connected. Kind of like we all connect through Atlanta. Wherever my parents went in 1999, they connected through Detroit. Anyway, we still had boxes from moving in everywhere but I cleared a path for my parents and made the guest room look as inviting as I possibly could. Then right before I left for the airport, my brother called me, called me um, 
and told me that my dad had had a heart attack on the plane and that, of course, they tried to save him, but that he didn't make it. I could not process that my brother was telling me this. Um, it was late in the evening on a Saturday, uh, and my husband was working overnight at the hospital, so I was all alone. And I just remember hanging up the phone and just screaming, just screaming. I screamed so much that my neighbors, who I hadn't even met yet, called the police. And uh, when they arrived, I had to explain what happened. And they kindly offered to stay with me until my husband got home. He was on his way to call. Uh, Will prayed with me and read scripture to me until the wee hours of the morning. But I still couldn't sleep. I laid on the bed in the guest room that I had made look so cute for my parents. I stared at the ceiling, trying to let the truth sink in. We took the first flight to Detroit that morning. I remember thinking that maybe my dad would pull up to the curb and pick us up. What a crazy mix-up, he said. I just could not resign myself that my dad could really be gone. I was worried that losing my dad would also be like losing my mom, because how could she possibly be happy another day? My parents had such a tight and loving relationship. I just didn't see her surviving. She'd never be the same. And I worried about her faith, too. She'd always had such a sweet, strong faith. I dreaded seeing her. I dreaded seeing her. And when I saw her, I swear she had aged like 25 years. But that was just the first day. Over the course of the next days and months, she made me so proud. She was a widow at only 57 years old, but she never wavered in trusting that God was in control. She never uttered a bitter word, but continually thanked God for their many happy years. She never would have chosen that heartache. No one would choose that. But the days that followed showed me that God's grace is sufficient. Two and a half years later, my mom was staying with us, and by now we had a baby boy who brought us all so much joy. But my mom received another phone call. This time it wasn't from my brother, it was about my brother. His small plane had crashed and all on board were presumed dead. The four of us were soon on a plane headed to Florida. My mom sat in the window seat, my husband on the aisle, and I held the baby in the middle. Both my mom and my husband cried the whole flight. You see, my husband had become best friends with my brother. In fact, since losing my brother, my husband, who is extremely introverted, has never had a friend like him again. So yes, we were all devastated, but once again, my mom didn't fall apart. I didn't fall apart. My faith didn't falter. God's grace was sufficient. His presence and comfort sustained us. I've experienced and witnessed a lot of loss. My uncle took his own life. My cousin, who was more like a sister, had a healthy three-month-old baby daycare under very suspicious circumstances. In 2006, I had a miscarriage. In 2017, I lost my mom. With each and every loss, God has proved faithful. The lyrics to Natalie Grant's Held describe exactly what I've experienced. The song says, this is what it means to be held, how it feels when the sacred is torn from your life and you survive. This is what it is to be loved and to know that the promise was when everything fell, we'd be held. 
Every single day, I want to call my mom. I want to tell her the hilarious things that my boys have said and done. I want her wise counsel over the slander mess. I want to just process daily life with her the way I did for so many years. I certainly never envisioned myself without parents in my 40s, but that's my reality. And honestly, the more losses I've faced, the more heartache I've endured, the more I recognize that my most fiercely loyal friend isn't my mom, or my husband, or anyone else. The only person who will never let me down is Jesus. He will never leave me or forsake me. His grace is sufficient, always. In fact, the more surrendered I am to God's plan, the more I live life open-handed, asking God what is next, instead of telling him what's next, the less fear I have. Outwardly, it sounds like a paradox. Waving the white flag of surrender drives out fear. But the truth is we aren't in control even when we try to be. All we do by trying to control is take on the anxiety and fear of false control. Once you realize that, then it makes perfect sense that surrender is the path to peace. But there's another way of looking at all of this. What do all three peace killers have in common? All three involve a lack of trust. The first peace killer involves a failure to trust that the gentle providence of the Holy Spirit are for our benefit and fulfillment. The second is about trusting that God is a God of justice, that God will avenge and vindicate and defend in his perfect timing. The third involves trusting that God is sovereign, that we need not need to direct the ship, that we are not at the helm of anything. I have learned that giving up this charade of control is a daily battle, but it's one worth fighting. Our culture and its logic have adopted the lie that we can and must chart the course of our lives that we can and must fiercely protect what we cherish. Many believers express reluctance and fear about giving control of our lives to God. But I know that the scariest thing is to defiantly resist God's effort to loosen your grasp. He is so faithful to gently pry my grasping hands loose again and again, whispering, let go, beloved, let go. God knows you better than anyone, and his plan is always for your ultimate good. Where are you trying to dictate how things should go? Are these areas where you're also experiencing fear? God loves you perfectly every single moment of every single day. Do you believe that? Do you trust him? Because from Genesis to Revelation, we see one God, one God who longs to hear us say, I trust you. I trust you. Those three little words, I trust you, determine our ability to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. So, may 2019 be a year where we all trust him more, living each day with the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts, and looking forward to the day we see him face to face. So thanks for having me. Let me close in prayer. Holy Father, I thank you for this opportunity to share um, with Covenant today. What an incredible community and place, Lord, where you are the center of it all, Lord. And help us all to live lives like that. 
um, live out the message of this school, Christ eminent in everything. So we do just ask that we live lives surrendered in 2019 and that we trust you. And we thank you for loving us so well. We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.